Hey, I'm Gretchen Bridgers of the Always a Lessons Empowering Educators podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Gabriel Rene, who's the author of the book, The Spatial Web, how Web 3.0 will connect humans, machines, and AI to transform the world. It's a fascinating book that you're going to love. It's going to make you think all about what could be and what's coming in the digital world. That's right. And by the way, today is September 3rd. And if you go to Amazon today after when you hear this, you're going to find out that this book is just 99 cents. Special deal for our listeners today. Now, if it's after September 3rd, uh, I'm sorry, it's still an awesome book. Check it out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Gabriel Rene is a technologist, researcher, and entrepreneur with a 25-year career in the technology, telecom, and media industries specializing in emerging te- technologies and their applications across the industrial fintech, mobile, and spatial computing markets. He serves as executive director of the Versus Foundation, a nonprofit organization developing the open source standards for the spatial web. He is a founding organizational member of the IEEE Ethics Certification Program for Autonomous and Intelligent Systems, a global board member of the Virtual Reality Augmented Reality Association, a founding member of the AR Cloud Association, and an advisor to multiple AI, XR, and blockchain organizations. In his spare time, Gabriel studies cross-cultural philosophy, mythology, sociology, and cyber semiotics. He is a music composer and lover of culture. He lives with his wife, Miriam, in Los Angeles, California. And today we're going to focus on his just-published book, The Spatial Web. And uh, Gabriel, thanks for stopping by, and I appreciate you joining us today. Say hi to everyone. Hello, everybody. Thanks for uh, inviting me, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, glad to have you. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about your, your book here in just a second that uh, is just released and, uh, um, and kudos on releasing that book and looking forward to talking with you about it. But before we do that, in, in your bio, one of the things I said, I want to know a little bit about you for a second. Let's, in your bio, I read that you're a composer. What type of music do you compose and is it electronic or do you have a favorite musical instrument that you play or uh, what type of music you do? <laughs> so um, I... I actually started as a music producer. My family uh, had been in, in the, has been in the music industry since the early, early 1900s, 1902. Wow. And um, family came out of New Orleans, so grew up in the, the jazz and soul uh, world. Um, when I was uh, in my early 20s, um, electronic music was really starting to take shape, and I got into house music specifically as I was living in San Francisco, um, sort of Silicon Valley area, uh, this deep house music scene really started to emerge there and fell in love with it and started producing it back then in the 90s and then uh, produced many different styles since then. But but I, I kind of like this, ironically, the intersection between extremely technological sounding stuff and their extremely organic sounding stuff. So I really love the sort of mixed reality of, of music. And that, in a way, that's the first 
domain that I was able to use technology to manipulate and to blend and create, uh, you know, sort of environments, sonic environments, if you will. So um, that's, uh, that is my, my first love. And uh, in a way, even what we're doing with verses in the spatial web is, is about what I consider to be one of my superpowers, which is how to orchestrate harmony. It's really how do you pull a lot of different elements together and and but in such a way that they're complementary so i think the ironic thing is that in the art world or in music specifically bringing things together in ways that they work well we call harmony uh or orchestration um or, or composition in in the technology world we just call that interoperability it's not as sexy but it's very similar <laughs> nice nice oh cool that's that's awesome the uh, so so I got to ask, is it, uh, you know, with us talking about uh, a little bit about Web 3.0 and all that, uh, do you do any of the, uh, where the computer does the composing to try and figure out that, uh, I've been reading a lot about the idea that uh, we might uh, get to that planet where uh, the computer's composing stuff and uh, we may not re really know if it's a, although I, I would hope that I would recognize whether it's a me mechanical com composition. I don't think you'll be able to recognize the difference. Oh, Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, our senses are um, uh, not that fine-tuned, right? And right. so, um, so I, I don't use <clears throat> any sort of um, AI to <clears throat> compose or produce, but um, all of the work that goes into what's fascinating is sort of the, how to make things that are analog, that, you know, digital versions of them that sound to the human ear indistinguishable from, you know, a, let's take like a vintage, you know, uh, Bosendorfer piano, right? They, they've, they've recreated this piano and you can perform it on a little plastic keyboard that costs a hundred bucks um, in such a way that it sounds like you're playing on a million dollar, you know, concert uh, piano. And what's amazing about that is the democratization of now anyone that can buy, whatever, spend out of say $200 for the plugin, um, can now perform on this million dollar virtual replica of a piano. It's why I say that you, you, I don't believe your, our senses will be able to tell the difference because in the, in, you know, there's this term called the uncanny valley, which is very popular around this idea of, of making, you know, virtual characters that are indistinguishable from humans. And the uncanny valley is that sort of place where with the Toy Story characters that look kind of cartoony, we actually attribute a lot of humanity to them. Um, but as soon as they get to look hyper-realistic, they tend to look fake and freaky and plastic. <laughs> and the uncanny valley is that place between, you know, where we, we anthropomorphize things that are, you know, a talking potato to where it's, indistinguishable from a human and then that gap there it just kind of isn't but there are many uncanny valleys and in the in the realm of music production uh, they have already surpassed what the ear i think can distinguish as being real wow that's that's amazing i um i <laughs> I, I love music all kinds of music i'm a um I, I was a lot better when i was a kid but i play trumpet and uh some brass instruments and uh, love love that and i am amazed by the sounds <laughs> that are created it's a hard one to fake actually you know yeah. the wind instruments are incredibly difficult to fake but i i've i've played with some stuff recently that is getting really close and wow. in a lot of areas they they've actually surpassed it even with my ear i couldn't i don't think i could tell the difference wow it's just <laughs> it's wild where we're going right now so cool stuff so it's, it's, it's wild so thank you so much for talking about that, 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 you know, it's one of the things that, so where we're going today is we're talking about your book. It's, it's the spatial web, how web 3.0 will connect humans, machines, and AI to transform the world. 
so can we start here? What's the spatial web as a concept? And could you also use this as an opportunity, you know, to share a little about the differences between web 2.0 and 3.0? Yes. Um, so web 1.0, 2.0, and arguably 3.0 are, um, are not really technologies. I, I, I argue that they're eras. Um, they're defined as eras when certain technologies uh, become available. Um, you know, we had computers before we had the web. We actually had email before we had the web. Email used the internet. Uh, internet was a, the internet was able to use what we call domain names, right? .com, .edu was one of the more popular ones because it actually came out of a lot of academic research. First four nodes, you know, of the, of the internet were um, uh, were universities. So the the idea that you could connect these computers and then send information between computers had, had already existed. It came out of work, you know, done by DARPA in the, in the sixties. And by the time we get into the eighties, <clears throat> we have these domain names are starting to be very usable and we can send information to each other through these computers. It was kind of an evolution of a decentralized version of the, the telephone, right? The telecommunication system. And then we have to make this distinction between the internet and the web. So in 1990, uh, uh, Tim Berners-Lee starts working on uh, an idea to take what we'd already been able to do with word processing, was to be able to edit words on a computer, unlike how we'd done it on paper before, and create links that would tie back to those domain names, which were called URLs, right? So then you could actually put links inside of pages. You could post those pages. So instead of me as a researcher trying to send you my 200-page you know, uh, report, um, where I'm even referencing you and other uh, scientists and researchers, um, where I'm, you know, I'm either shipping it to you or I'm trying to email this massive document. Instead, I could just post the document and put the links in that can then reference your research. And so all of a sudden, you created this web of pages. And it was very different from this inbox, outbox of email or merely the internet where computers are able to you know, have addresses and talk to each other. So you have this spatial domain, you have, this, sorry, you have this, this web domain address and you uses that to create these links that then hide those addresses and then you can bed them in pages and HTML enabled us to you know, do uh, uh, edit, editing content on a page. So more or less that's web 1.0, the ability to link and connect media and text-based content, which is the dominant content on the web, two pages in a digital format. It's a giant library in the cloud. That's web 1.0. Mostly during that era, it was a read-only. People posted stuff and you, you read it. Web 2.0 becomes a read and write web where then anyone can start to contribute information. This is where we see the explosion of blogs and we see you know, user-generated content and whether it's you know, text-based content or social, social networking or, or YouTube, um, all of this content rushes in and everyone's starting to comment on each other's stuff. You couldn't do that on websites in the beginning. So you now get what we call the read-write web, meaning that it's a two-way conversation. Um, but it's still on pages, right? And where we're going now, which is really Web 3.0, is that that information and that content uh, about the world gets embedded into the world itself. The major distinction in Web 3.0 is that computing moves into the space around us. And whether, that we, whether we call that the Internet of Things, where these are you know, computers embedded into anything, our clothing, our, our, our wearables, our, our furniture, our, our devices, our lights, our, um, our, our, our infrastructure, our industrial um, uh, equipment, 
that's that's not not computer in you know in a room here. It's computing all around us. Uh, sometimes people refer to ubiquitous AI. The idea that AI will be embedded into you know everything around us. Um, again, that's kind of fundamentally spatial. Um, and then spatial computing itself, which becomes a new interface, augmented and virtual reality, that suddenly moved from you know sort of typing uh, to you know while we're trying to communicate with our computers through swiping and typing to talking and gesture and and eye tracking and, and the, many of the ways that we most naturally communicate with each other we're teaching computers how to understand how humans operate in the world and so all of those technologies you'll notice the trend is sort of that they're you know the the, the internet of things is sort of every sometimes they call it ambient computing or ubiquitous ai or decentralized computing of the blockchain or edge compute where the the power of the compute isn't in the cloud somewhere else but it's actually all around you kind of distributed amongst everything and finally spatial computing which becomes this new interface all of those are fundamentally talking about spatializing compute power all around us and so this is why in the web 3.0 era we call it the spatial web awesome the uh you know it's one of the things that I found myself thinking about uh, while I was reading your work, the, the words in the book, is is just all kinds of cool stuff that could be. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, that's what you were doing to me, all right. As I'm as I'm reading the words and I'm going through the book, and I'm like, and I start thinking about um, just the the science fiction I grew up with. I, I grew up in Florida where I got to see space shots and all kinds of stuff like that, and and awesome. uh, you know, and I got to see which encouraged me i grew up on star trek and i like star wars too but i'm really a you know a scotty and a captain kirk <laughs> bones <laughs> era people so you know but it's uh all, all this your book would start getting me really back into that world of of thinking about uh what could be and where we might be going with this uh this electronic computing world that we're in and and your, your discussion about the spatial web is, is is really spot on this is so cool and one of the things that i thought was really need is there's and by the way i had a hard time narrowing down what i was going to ask you all right <laughs> i'll come back <laughs> Wait, hey I, we i'd be happy to do that we we visit it and we'll do uh um part two because it's it's uh uh it was uh it was difficult narrowing it down because there's so many different areas that i directions i could have gone so i got so i got focused on my world of um what if and the things that might be um, really impacting us. And, and one of the, mm -hmm. the areas that I started focusing on is that we've had some problems in, in our digital world that focus, you know, where our privacy has been kind of uh, um, at odds with the, you know, the digital era and all, you know, what we could do. And, and all of a sudden somebody else owns all your, all your data and things like this and these little yeah. blips like that. And, you know, one of the things I was wondering if you could talk about the spatial web and privacy by design that you talk about. Mm-hmm. So I guess first let's kind of highlight the, the, the problems that we're facing in Web 2.0 and maybe talk a little bit about how we got here in the first place. Great. So when the, the early web was being designed, there, there was no concept. Um, I won't suggest that they weren't thinking about it because they were thinking about some of this, but it was impractical and also arguably irrelevant which is the idea of having some sort of identity. So those original, those first browsers, you know, they didn't even uh, really collect any information. I mean, there's no, like they're storing information locally on your, on your computer, right? right. What was your browsing? It's not someone else's. So 
So there's no identity, there's no ID. Um, and then there was no security layer. Uh, that was added later. And um, so privacy, uh, privacy and identity go hand in hand, right? Because it's all about my privacy or your privacy. So if you don't have an ID and you don't have security around who can check out information as it's moving along, you, you end up sort of inevitably at the web 2.0 you know, surveillance capitalism, um, which is really how, you know, companies monetizing uh, your information about your behavior. And that information today is um, everything from, from the obvious things like what you might like on Facebook, um, slightly less obvious things, or like all of your locations which are being tracked by the GPS in your phone. Um, the real challenge is that, you know, great research has come out of Harvard and other institutions that essentially say if I have any, you know, if I have 15 data points about you that are random, seemingly random data points, which I could have purchased as, as any sort of, uh, you know, advertiser from any one of these companies, what they call first, second, third party data sets, uh, I can pretty much figure out who you are. So anonymized data is not, not anonymous <laughs> and it can all be correlated. So, you know, we have a problem and the problem is that, uh, that data is being sold and resold by a massive uh, black market. Um, I don't mean to suggest that it's illegal, uh, just that it's entirely unclear who has what. And uh, they're selling it to each other, mainly just for something that's, that's, that we would feel is initially kind of innocuous, which is like, well, someone's going to push you know, products at me on the web. Like more banner ads I'm going to ignore, right? Um, but when it becomes a way of motivating behavior, almost programming behavior, then um, you, know, you, you end up with parties trying to buy information about you in order to influence your vote. And whatever people may think about the results of the last um, election, um, it's, it's clear from the evidence that, you know, uh, parties outside the U.S. were paying uh, to influence our vote. So we are susceptible, and, and we're all not entirely sure even what we're susceptible to. So this is kind of the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal that, that popped up, and amazing Netflix, um, the great hack documentary. If you haven't seen it, please go watch that. It's, I think, a seminal uh, work on the, the sort of highlighting this, the, how we all fell down here. And... So that's really the problem. When we start there, the, we, don't, we didn't have the underlying technologies for privacy. They weren't designed into the system. We didn't have security designed into the system. And then businesses that built their applications on top of the web, like Google, like Facebook, um, uh, and, and others, uh, you know, monetized those uh, data sets. And we're... We're at a place today where then, you know, there's a lot of criticism for these companies for that. But in, a, in, a, in, a, in an era where they're public companies that need to basically answer to the bottom line as their main uh, sort of, you know, center of value, the values of, of, a, of a corporate entity tend to be, you know, the value of money. So the real challenge we have right now is um, the data isn't ours. It's just not our property. We don't own it. 
And so people can complain, but there are no laws uh, that are that are really protecting it as property. Um, GDPR, which is you know the uh, Gen General Data Protection um, uh, uh, Act that's that's coming uh, out of the U. Uh, uh, Europe, the EU, um, is a great starting point, and it's it's why everyone has to click yes. I accept cookies. Um, it's really poorly implemented, and um, and no one quite understands what their rights are. So it's 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 a, it's a great starting point. Now in California, we also have some some a new privacy rights act that's uh, that's coming out. Japan's working on one. This is this is you know now saying hey, companies like Facebook, if you abuse these data sets. Um, especially around what, what are considered, you know, private uh, data, uh, we're going to fine you. So the most recent fine was a $5 billion fine on Facebook. Um, a, a, a kind of a slap on the wrist is in terms of dollar amount. Well, that's a big, big number for the rest of us. But it's meaningful in that it's demonstrating how uh, the abuse of our data comes with penalties, societal and cultural penalties. And clearly the brand of Facebook has been harmed. And I think Google is trying aggressively to actually, frankly, evolve their business model towards Google Cloud and other services that don't rely so much on you know, reselling data. So that's how we ended up here. It was a lack of foresight. And so um, we don't have that luxury today because we have the, the advantage of seeing the 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 damage and the terrors in our social fabric that uh, that we all experience and feel today, and it's everything around you know the, the sort of this this feeling in the back of your you know back of your head, back of your mind about whether web web 2.0 is actually a good thing is social is social media a good thing um, you know our our president is tweeting on the regular there's a there's a whole debate around whether or not you know he should or shouldn't be using that technology whether he's whether he is uh you know breaching the terms of twitter and and what is twitter's response well twitter's a corporation and the president is a citizen and you know there's nothing preventing that but i think it's an indication of that and a lot of what we see on social media um we there are questions around what are our, our inherent values so every culture has uh some uh, degree of concern around privacy, security, and trust. So at our foundation, the Versus Foundation, which is developing these underlying protocols, much like Tim Berners-Lee did back in the early 90s for the World Wide Web, we've created the spatial web protocol technologies. And we're utilizing uh, blockchain technologies and decentralized ledger technologies and what are called DIDs, which are a new kind of like, almost like a URL, but instead of for pages, it's like an, it's an identifier slash address, uh, addressable identifier for any object. Now that can be a person, it could be a location, uh, it could be a building, it could be a, a physical object in the world, it could be a virtual object or asset, like a Pokemon Go character or a magic sword in a virtual world. It, it can be a unique identifier. It can't be correlated in the same ways that, that our current data sets are. And what this leads to is a flip, ideally, uh, from, you know, back when um, we used to think that, that the earth was the center of the universe, right? And the sun and all the planets revolved around them. Well, that's, that's like us today. You know, Google and Facebook, these large companies, they're the center of the of web 2.0 and we 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 you know we rotate around them and and sort of we're users of their platform turned out that was entirely wrong 
and, and later we find out through good science and math that uh, the sun is, you know, the center of our galaxy and that we rotate around it. Well, that's what needs to happen with our data. It needs to flip to where that, that data becomes our data. This is part of the design principles for Web 3.0, that we become owners of our own data. Um, and then companies and third parties get to ask and request that information from us. There are huge advantages to this, by the way. One being that as an advertiser right now, if, I try, if I'm trying to target you, you know, for the, the sale of a, a mattress online, you know, you come to my, my, my mattress, you know, uh, you know mattressesrs.com and you check out a really nice, you know, Eastern King and then you leave. What do I do? I chase you around the web for the next two weeks. I'm like, hey, 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 Steven, remember me? Remember me? Is this one you want? This one you want, right? It works just like that too. <laughs> right. And, um, but then, you know, who, you know, you, you, you went to your, you know, you went away for the weekend, you went to your brother-in-law's place and they had a brand new Eastern King mattress. They never used it. It was sitting in the garage and they're like, Oh, we bought two. We figured out, we thought it was going to fit. We brought the wrong size sheets. We got this other one, you know, why don't you just take it home with you? Well, I don't know that. And so I'm still chasing you around the web going, Hey, Eastern King, you know, 10% off, 15% off, 20% off. Um, because I have to buy my information through Facebook, because I have to go through Google, I have to go through some third party, I'm relying on this third party data about you. But what if you could just let me know, I've already got a mattress. And I'd be like, hey, great deal on uh, you know, pillows or sheets. So you know, I would actually pay you directly to stay in sync with your data set, to know that it was valid, to know there was actually a human, not a bot. You know, advertisers have the same problem. Think about the advertising market online. It has a 1% success rate. Wow. 1%, right? 1%. In, tell me one other business in the world where you can get away with a 1% success rate and that's called success. So 99% of advertising is failing. And so the idea that going through third parties or having X number of too many steps along the way, you know, we're able to reduce those steps with digital, but with third parties in the middle, we have, the data is inaccurate and the entire exchange becomes of less value to all parties. The parties in the middle do, do, do their job nicely and they make, you know, they're all worth a trillion dollars now. Um, maybe that's not the right model going forward. Maybe they are a geocentric view of the universe. We need to, we need to flip to a heliocentric view of the universe where we are the sun and at the center of our own sort of, you know, data galaxy. It's, you know, it's, it's just wild where all this can, uh, well, first of all, I think what's wild is the fact that we kind of went into this wild, wild west of, uh, <laughs> of just, hey, here we go. We're going to do all this stuff. And then suddenly everybody started realizing, oh, they're, they're selling stuff. <laughs> that's, that's all about me and all this stuff over here. And then we started realizing the way, way it should be and what it what was happening and it's it's just interesting now we're seeing these this evolution of this stuff because it's you know it's uh, while m most of us may not you know it, it may not be like the big shift from uh, um oh i don't you know from the eight track to the uh, <laughs> to the cd um in the music world it's it it is kind of clunky in that sort of way we went from the clunky eight track in privacy to something that's seeming to to be a little bit more smoother a little bit of um, better, I guess, is my point. I don't know. Um, interesting. So yeah, it's, a, well, it's like there's a natural evolution of things that um, that require us to confront certain shortcomings with our current designs, and that's how we evolve our designs. Just like nature evolves, you know, it evolves the design of the designs that led to us. So I think this is just nature doing its thing. 
Gotcha. That's cool. The, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I found fascinating is the subject of digital property rights. Could you talk a little bit about this? Yes. Would you like the, the broad definition or want to restrict it to land? Uh, let's, uh, you know, it, actually it made me think about all kinds of other stuff, but, um, yeah, let's, 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 let's do the broad idea okay. first. Sure. Um, so I think, you know, we're talking about data, we're talking about privacy. The, next, the, the real question is, you know, uh, what are my rights, right? So I, I, I might have certain rights to privacy, um, which, which uh, you know, can be enforced um, and regulations uh, are helpful and necessary. Um, but property is something else. And so, you know, we've had a very interesting history around this concept of property. But fundamentally, property um, is, a, is kind of a defining human concept. Um, territories, you know, animals have territories, but we have property. And for example, you know, things that uh, are illegal in one country aren't illegal in another. Um, it is defined almost entirely by where you physically are located, literally whose property you're on. Um, you know, when we were serfs and we worked for the king, the, the land was the king's. Um, we, we worked on the land and we got you know, basically room and board, but we didn't really have land property. Now we, we, we could own our stuff uh, and everyone has a pretty distinct notion of what is theirs and what's not. And interestingly, most of the wars in the world are fights over whose, whose property is this and can I take it from you? And, um, you know, the objects in our world uh, are, are, are property. You know, we've had humans as property throughout history. Um, you know, women were considered property. Um, and this idea that uh, ownership confers certain rights is very powerful. Now, in the modern era, um, if someone takes my property, you know, my laptop here, I get to call the police and say, hey, this guy took my property. Yeah, we got a law for that and they can go after him and get him. So when it comes to digital things, it's a little harder to uh, address. So typically digital things have fallen under copyright because predominantly most of what we have that is digital uh, is a copy. It's not an original. Uh, it's just like the original down to the, the bit. But, um, but it's, a, it's not a one of a kind. Um, and so this is where you, you, you know, we saw Napster you know, emerge and the record labels go after people who's copyright infringement. They didn't say he took my property. So then you illegally copied something that you couldn't. When you enable a layer in Web 3.0 of that, the data layer of what, what we would call you know, data integrity, which can be backed by things like distributed ledgers with uh, various types of distributed ledgers can be blockchains or tangles or graphs or DAGs or whatever they come up with next. But the idea is that I can trust the data from this source better than others. Um, you have the uh, ability to create not the digital abundance that we had on the web, which reduced the value of songs and videos and movies and, you know, to, to 
near zero um, because of their ability to be infinitely copied. Now we have digital scarcity. So because you can create a single unique ID uh, for any object in the physical world, but you can also do it for a digital asset. This could be a, like I suggested, a Pokemon character. It could be a, it could be a magic wand from a Harry Potter world. It could be the MK2, uh, you know, Iron Man suit that uh, Disney says there's only one of these, the official version of these, and you know, the thing could end up being worth um, hundreds of thousands of dollars. We saw a lot of this in some of the early virtual worlds, um, uh, kind of that emerged Second Life and others uh, over the last you know decade and change. So. This idea of our property being our, our data, uh, being the physical objects that we own, but also then moving into the digital objects that may exist in the physical world or may exist in the digital world, um, backed by uh, what we would consider spatial property, which we call spatial domains. So every, just like you control, you know, your website, um, and I, you know, I control versus.io and Amazon controls amazon.com. Uh, those are domains. Um, they happen to be pages that, that they control the rights. You know, they get, you, you get to decide what you put on your page or what they'll even allow me to put on your page. That becomes a layer on top of our physical world property. So you have kind of a, almost think of it like a three-dimensional, you know, almost like a cube digital force field around your property. This then gives you certain levels of control and rights with respect to what objects and content and information uh, can, can be there, um, including what robots could enter or which drones could enter or which humans could enter because humans are you know, going to start looking at the world through, through smart glasses and see digital information and instructions and you know, no walk zones and in the same way we have signs in the world today, but suddenly it'll be digital and editable. We also need to make sure that that's reliable. So this is also where the sort of trust, you know, data integrity layer comes in because you don't want people hacking into the visuals around you hmm. that you're, you're relying on, you know? Um, so that's kind of the basis of digital property. It extends from, from the, the, the land that we're on into the physical objects around us and then into virtual objects that, you know, can, be out, anything out of our wildest imaginations from all our entire history of movies and films and books and and even eventually things that AI is just inventing on the fly to that that might appeal to us. It's it's fascinating topic because like and I think you know we started with music at the beginning of the the interview. I you know it's one of the things that I started thinking about quite a bit in here because one of the things that drives me nuts in this this current world. So I'm going to really show my age here. The uh, it is that uh, I do not like the idea of digital. The I, I want to own my music. <laughs> and I like the idea that I love the fact that millennials help bring back vinyl and LPs because you actually physically own something that you, that you buy. And it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of other reasons why I like it. I mean, you go back into the 70s and you got really cool artwork that was attached to all the, the covers and things like this. But and mm -hmm. die cutting and all kinds of cool things they tried to, they, they came up with at the time, but you know, you know, it's, it just doesn't cut it when it's that little bitty picture that's on the, uh, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> there, uh, uh, that, that I see. And, and I think what's interesting to kind of drive this more than me reminiscing and, and loving the fact that I've my vine, you know, I can still buy vinyl and, uh, and listen to it. The, uh, is that, you know, one of the things that's kind of fascinating to me is, the whole 
thing that happened over if I had my phone, whichever phone I had, and I downloaded music and bought it through the that company, and then when I went to change computers that it was being downloaded on because I upgraded it, people suddenly found, uh oh, <laughs> those companies discovered the hiccup that took place because people were like, wait a second, this isn't working. I go to this computer and now my phone doesn't recognize the music anymore and all all that sort right. of stuff. The Apple, so what it was called, you know, digital rights management or DRM. Yes. Um, so the problem with DRM, well, there's so many problems with DRM, but <laughs> it eventually just got rid of it, right? Um, right. <laughs> it was what the record labels needed to feel comfortable giving Apple this foreign, you know, corporation. They'd always distributed and sold, you know, physical, <laughs> quite frankly, physical things through through, through stores. Um, give them, give Apple control. They said, well, we have to have some degree of control in knowing how many, how many computers is ending up on. So, you know, they limited it to like five computers, but then, you know, as you upgraded, it was just the worst night. <laughs> then the more songs you downloaded, it got worse. So eventually streaming and on demand became the ideal sort of user experience. The whole idea of paying for local storage sucked. And so everything kind of shifted to interesting enough, interestingly enough, uh, not Apple's proprietary AAC standard, but the uh, you know standard MP3 open you know uh, open standard format. So oftentimes we see these sort of walled gardens in the beginning, uh, where you know certain parties want to make sure they're holding on to control. We saw this, um, or 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 create an on ramp for users that are unfamiliar, kind of you know to to gain more adoption. We saw this with. America Online and CompuServe and Prodigy in the early 90s, where a lot of people didn't experience the web directly. They went to, you know, this sort of little corralled, curated version of the web. Um, and, uh, but those, those almost always die. Uh, you know, in, in the end, uh, a well-designed standard um, tends, you know, that, it's, that has some degree of openness that can develop a community around it tends to uh, trend towards becoming the most widely adopted. In the case of operating systems, you know, Linux is actually, iOS is built on Linux and Android is built on Linux and even Microsoft is, you know, given up on degree now and building on Linux. So um, there's a, you know, there's a lesson to be learned there. What, what, what the book is trying to tackle with respect to some of those challenges is um, let's not waste billions of dollars in time uh, doing this walled garden sort of dance for for five the first five to ten years here. Let's just jump immediately to the good part. Um, let's let's learn from our mistakes. We don't have to fall down every time. We we can actually just remember it wasn't that long ago. And uh, and, and in fact, we're looking at the, this fallout effect of this sort of centralization of open systems. You know, in Web 2.0, and it's you know we kind of broke the world. So we don't we can't really afford to do that in in Web 3.0 because. The, the, the level of data that's being captured is biometric data. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's your glasses can read your heart rate by, by, you know, looking at the blood vessels in your eyes, your, your wearable is going to be tracking all kinds, you know, mood, every, every little nuance is going to be traceable. We really can't afford to have that, that kind of information be monetized by third parties that we're unaware of um, because the ability to manipulate people at scale, it will be obvious. So the book is, is, partially trying to be a wake-up call um, uh, for us to uh, recognize what didn't work for us uh, as a whole. And really an opportunity I think that we've never had, which is that this, this generation, 
everyone who's alive for the next 20 years, right? I'm gonna call that a generation, um, has an opportunity that's never existed before in, in the history of the species. And that is an opportunity to actually create a network civilization. Not just, a, not just an internet where you've got, or a web where there's, we've got networked information, but actually a, a global civilization for the first time. We don't have a global civilization. We have, we have nations that, uh, it, that do some interoperating together pretty well, right? We've done a nice job, but we, you know, we're now being connected globally through these technologies in amazing and powerful ways. And there are huge advantages for us if we can learn to play well together. <laughs> That's a nice comment right there, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. There, there are. It's, it's just a, it's just amazing. It's just where, where the brains can take us if, if we can figure out how to get along. <laughs> so, um, very cool. I, I got to make sure that you know, as we're moving forward, there's, there's a section that you get into that I think is every bit of my audience knows a little bit about, and that's Minecraft. You know, it's. One of the things I love is where you, you touch on the idea that this is not just a child's game. This is a cool world building thing that's going on. And uh, can you just give us a little taste of that? Because there's a really cool section in the book about, about, the, about what's going on and uh, the cool aspects of all these children having you know, been part of this, this world building going on with Minecraft. Yeah, I, um, I remember... A number of years ago, I think it was my um, my nephews. Uh, he was must have been four or five. Um, he had become obsessed with this thing called Minecraft, and um, I thought it's a video game. Um, but he's 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 lost his marbles. I mean, he can't. <laughs> he can't stop talking about you know the, the characters and the Cooper this and this you know it's, he's 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 it's like he's visiting Earth but really he hangs out in, in, in this Minecraft space. Right. Um, having been involved with VR uh, and AR since the early '90s, I am well aware uh, of the uh, what makes a digital interactive experience compelling. And we've seen it with gamers. But whereas you've got all these different, so World of Warcraft scenarios and um, Fortnite and, and other games uh, sort of in the eSport, e Minecraft is really interesting to me because more or less have 100 million kids um, that are designing and building an entire virtual world that is, you know, is adds up to something that's like eight times the size of planet earth. And so it's not a, it's not a children's game. It's a world scale, like civil engineering project disguised as a game. And so this is a generation of world builders, virtual world builders. They're, they, they interface through, you know, sort of digital tools to build these entire environments and eight times. I mean, if I told you, oh, hey, 10 years ago, if I said, oh, I'm going to get 100 million kids together. They're going to build a virtual world that's eight times the size of planet Earth. And we're going to spend all their time on that, just building stuff. Um, no, no, impossible. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, I, and then, of course, then you've got, you know, your, your multiplayer stuff and the esports is becoming legitimized and an explosion of 
you know, Fortnite. The thing that I like about both Fortnite and Minecraft is it's not, whereas, you know, you, you have uh, some drama and some good guy, bad guy stuff. Um, uh, you know, it's still fundamentally about building things. So whether you're building forts or you're building avatars or you're building, um, you know, cities, um, these, these are just the precursors. These are the first websites. Remember how horrible the first websites were. <laughs> yes. Now, now there's a tri- now there's now there's a there's like a trillion web pages, right? There's 300 billion websites. Wow. So how many billions of worlds are there going to be in 25 years? Oh, it's it. I I can't even imagine. You got two billion gamers now. Like, right. like a third of the you know almost you know two plus billion people on the planet are gaming every month. Wow. What happens when those worlds become can start to pay you money to experience some of them? Now, one might argue that um, that that there isn't any real value in someone who builds like a virtual club uh, <laughs> in a virtual world where ten thousand people virtually attend it, and there's virtual you know virtual lights and virtual drinks and virtual conversations and virtual dancing and all this. Um, except that's exactly what an actual club is. <laughs> it's this whole virtual experience. We just happen to build it in atoms instead of bits. So I think that um, whereas we have a bias towards things that are made out of matter, uh, in two generations, no one will care. That's, this is what I mean by your book makes me think about the what ifs and the where's it going and that type of thing, because you, you know, this not so long ago, none of this existed. And, and uh, we've, popped up into, you know, the evolution that you're talking about that's that's moving us forward and as we're progressing. And it really does get you thinking about where, what is going to happen with this. I mean, you know, some of it's simplistic in that uh, I now have, we're in the 70s, I had to put speakers in the window, crank up the stereo to, to, to hear it all I was out there working in the yard and stuff like this. And now I've got the power in my phone with a couple of Bluetooth speakers that are really small, but yet put out power. That's just, Oh, you know, and I go from something simplistic like that to some sort of virtual world building that may help doctors see what the problem is, where the cancer is located or whatever it is. And, uh, and be able to, yeah. And just amazing stuff. And that's, that's a, that's a, that's the thing, Stephen. It's like it's it's not just uh, games and entertainment and sort of this idea of the the metaverse or the oasis or you know the three D version of the, the web. It's the you know, the fun side of it that'll be phenomenal. I mean, I, uh, I, you know, it's going to make Netflix feel like uh, you know the the like a Moby Dick. It's it's great, amazing, uh, just entirely different format. We you know seventy <clears> percent <throat> of I think 70% of the nerves uh, in the body are hooked into the eyes. Wow. So we're, we're, we're designed to be ocular. <laughs> we're designed to be spatial. And our understanding of our environment is fundamentally spatial. So when you, when you light up experiences, you know, as opposed to information, you process it at an entirely different, in an entirely different way. So the applications for education are, unbelievable and we're all kind of seeing you mentioned star trek you know there's like i think um you know they had like young spock in those sort of pods you know you, the, the entire everything gets disrupted in web 3.0 right especially web disrupts everything so education will be entirely different and you want to like you're not reading about the galaxy you just pull the galaxy up 
zoom right. into any planet. You know? And at some point, it'll be haptic. You know, you'll be able to feel the what is it? Give me an idea. Oh, it's warmer here. It's colder here. It's obviously you know brightness and light. But even like even physical touch is something that that I'm pursuing all kinds of research around. So it's it's going everything that you've seen in sci-fi, the matrix stuff, all of that is possible. The question is, is it 20 years or 40 years or 60 or 100? Uh, my guess is within 35 years, you're going to be able to have almost all of it. Uh, we will see quite a bit of it in the early in the early stages within the next decade. And 100 years from now, that, that that's it's a foregone conclusion. So, um, you know, Elon Musk likes to talk about um, this idea that we've gone from Pong to video games that are almost, you know, hyper, hyper realistic with, with you know, millions of people playing them simultaneously. So he said, you know, with any, any sort of just, you know, not even an exponential curve, which is what's actually happening, it was just a straight line, you know, just pick your, pick your decade, your century, or your millennia. It's a foregone conclusion that you arrive at a point where you can experience everything like your dreams. You know, you, in your dream, you can have a, a, an amazing, uh, you know, lemon gelato. Well, how? You're, none of those sensors are even working at that moment. So the brain's capable of, of doing this. So, you know, and, and neural lace, things that um, like Elon is working on now, and, and there's even neural dust that others are working on. So it's coming. Part of what, what we want to do is, uh, one, remind everyone this isn't an alien invasion. Okay, this is, this is everything that's just happening on Earth with Earthlings, and it's part of of evolution. I don't think evolution broke. It didn't stop working in 1982. And so what, what's happening is a, a natural progression. Now what we need to do is make sure we, we, if we're going to make mistakes, so we, we make them in such a way we don't end up with major existential crises. Um, and so I think there's just a level of sort of common sense responsibility. And, and most importantly, we have to really think about how we start to embed values, our values into our technology. They can't be this afterthought that then we fight about later and try to levy billions of dollars on a fine when you have no ability to control that, especially as we move towards what will ultimately be digital forms of government and therefore digital law and therefore digital um, execution of the law, right? So this becomes, you know, who has what data about you and how they get to use it becomes really incredibly important. So the next decade, this is what's going to set up that next century. And so this is why we have to make really smart decisions now. Gotcha. You know, it's, uh, even though it, it may not be about dinosaurs and bringing them back, but, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the message that's sent through Jurassic Park and uh, Michael Crichton's stories are, uh, are, are very much alive in this type of world as we're, we're progressing forward. Um, just because you have the power, should you go there and uh, what sort of rules should you abide by? So, uh, you know, that's uh, good stuff. So I want to, you know, <laughs> I could spend a lot of time on that area. That's great. That's great. Thank um, when, uh, you know, one of the things we're, uh, we're, we're kind of drawn to a close here. One of the things I want to make sure that I, I get you to talk just a little bit about is, you know, it, there's a chapter called implications and this is, this, is noted in there. Smart spaces all networked together hint at the spatial web's largest implication. For the first time in human history, it would enable a smart and interconnected global civilization, a smart world. Could you kind of take us home on that and let's uh, kind of finish out a little bit about the smart world? Yeah, there's um, that section opens with a quote from James Allen and the quote is, 
uh, but I'm going to set up. In all human affairs, there are efforts and there are results. And the strength of the effort is the measure of the result. Um, there, there lies within all of us uh, an idea of a utopian society. Um, a lot of good things have come from that and quite a few bad things have come from that idea. But it's hard to ignore um, their, the poll, the sort of, if it's a sort of, you know, mythological return to Eden, it's sort of a paradise uh, in the future. Um, whether or not that's, you know, heaven uh, somewhere else or, or heaven on earth, depending on what anyone's belief systems might be, the power of the technologies that we uh, have at hand in the web 3.0 era, like artificial intelligence and augmented virtual reality and internet of things and robotics and blockchains and cryptocurrencies of digital transactions in real time amongst humans and machines and virtual economies all working together, the automation of everything addresses a lot of the challenges that typically are part of those stories. And they are, um, can, how, do we get, how do we get rid of poverty? Um, how, do we, how do we eliminate violence? How do, we, um, how do we maximize our enjoyment? How do we create sustainable societies? How do we not damage everything, <laughs> our environment? Um, you know, things that seem utopian, but the truth is that we, each of us in our own way every day, are constantly trying to optimize for those. As individuals, within our families, within our communities, and to whatever degree that we feel like we have enough power to be able to influence that. So we all sort of want the same thing. Now, the, the point of the spatial web is really not to just have a really cool uh, sort of futuristic sci-fi um, you know, interface to information or instructions or entertainment so we can be more productive or enjoy ourselves more, that's great. When I hinted at earlier, which is this idea that of a civilization 5.0, which the, the, the Japanese have been talking about society 5.0, and um, which is sort of the, the fifth iteration uh, of, of human civilization. You know, this is the first one that has the potential to be global. There was not an opportunity to do it before because you had to network with them. Um, so a smart world is, is really uh, a world where um, what we call an autonomic uh, economy emerges. So imagine that all of our supply chains from you know, mine to, to market and from farm to table and from uh, seed to sale, <laughs> they, all of that becomes programmable. So the robots pulling it out, they're validating their origin. You wanna make sure that it's organic, okay, it's from this location. And then, then, then a, automated truck shows up and they put it in the truck and it goes to a warehouse and that's pulled out of a warehouse and to the shipping, the shipyard and to the, you know, to the port and then, you know, to the retail environment, which then you can experience in VR or AR while you're there. And then, or and then the drone flies into your home, that whole supply chain, which is really the, the, the sort of uh, the bloodstream of the planet, right? Like that, that's, that's giving us our nourishment and our food and our products and our spend. That is a multi-trillion dollar cost. And to the degree you can automate functions within that, it'll act more like an organic system. So our bodies act today. Frankly, an automated vehicle and an, and an entire auto, autonomic uh, 
or you know, autonomous vehicle or autonomic um, planet from a design perspective are not very different. Um, you need to get thousands of different parts to work together. What comes from that is that this idea of smart cities are able to then work with other smart cities. They become nodes uh, in a network and they're interoperable and they're able to optimize the flow of traffic and power and water and waste and resources and information, and transactions and humans. So we don't just get smart, you know, smart cars, we get smart cities. We don't just get smart cities though, those get connected to the ports, which are connected to another port, connected to another smart city. This idea that, you know, our factories and our farms, and our retail environments, um, our, 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 our civic engineering, even the way that, that it's sort of put together are all um, reconsidered and it's not seen as sort of separate um, uh, siloed, you know, um, uh, instruments in, 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 in a network, but, but really as part of a larger ecosystem. So when we are able to do that, we can actually address global ecological challenges um, from a systemic, from a systems uh, design point of view. Um, and both on the market side and on the government side, we have, we'll have the ability to actually have visibility into what's happening in, in these places, the ability to then uh, properly sort of price things, uh, the ability to set certain values and performance levels for what can and can't be done because it can be digitally enforced because mostly robots are you know, going to be doing that activity. So at that point, then you actually have a chance of hitting some of these UN sustainability goals, you know, where, you know, are the, the health of, of individuals, the health of the planet, clean water, renewable energy, um, even even things like po poverty start to become um, uh, less and less of uh, less and less of an issue. And we move more towards this 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 genuine opportunity to work as a a single system, a single ecosystem, which is which sounds bizarre, except that it's the most factual thing you could state, is that the Earth is a single ecosystem. So if we take the benefit of our digital technologies, are we able to use that in such a way that we can then uh, track and transfer and monetize in a sustainable way while respecting uh, the, the privacy of individuals and while remaining autonomous but connected that is what a smart world is. And we think that that's the ultimate prize and the real reason to do this. It isn't just to have a cool sci-fi future. That's, that's good motivation to start. Um, but the ultimate prize is, is uh, not just you know, smart glasses and smart cars and smart cities. It's actually a, an entire smart world. And this is, the first, this is the first, and it will be the only generation that will have the first opportunity to do that. So it's, it's, ours, to, uh, it's ours to create. And that's a big reason why our foundation um, was created was to create these underlying protocols that we're releasing as an open standard uh, sometime next year that become the basis for global 1000 companies for uh, governments and for individuals to like the web today be able to all use together just not a web behind the screen a web in the world very cool and so and and just to to remind everybody you're the executive director of the foundation's versus and uh is there anything else you want to share about that foundation absolutely thank you the um the World Wide web foundation was created um to foster adoption of the World Wide web protocols which we all know today is http um, html as well and um 
and that is what the Spatial Web um, uh, Versus Foundation is doing today. It's, instead of it being for text and media and pages, a sort of network of those things, it's, it's how do we build a network of people, places, things, and the value that we transact with each other um, in the Web 3.0 era. Because frankly, the, those protocols were designed for a very different function. And so we've designed a new set of protocols, um, just like the, the, the World Wide Web protocols, they're being developed as an open standard that'll allow different working groups to um, co-develop them over time. Um, and uh, so this goes from, some, from a, a theoretical thing where we've written a very nice book about what the future might be to the book has been written as a way to create awareness around a protocol that we've already designed that we're looking for a, a, you know, adoption and then ultimately advocacy. And so then each of us will have an opportunity to figure out what kind of spatial web uh, do we want to build and ultimately uh, what kind of world do we want to create. Very cool. The, uh, as we're finishing up, is there a place where you like to send people if they'd like to reach out, learn more, connect with you, um, whether it's social media, wherever it, uh, wherever it might be? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that. So um, I guess uh, it's probably worth noting that as of uh, sometime uh, in the last 12 hours, uh, the book, The Spatial Web, um, written by myself and my co-author, Dan Mapes, uh, is now an international number one bestseller. And um, that was pretty shocking. Well <laughs> done, man. Well done. Exciting. Yes. So you can, you can definitely find out more about uh, what we're working on at thespatialweb.org. Um, that site will be launching sometime this month. Uh, this is September. And, and then uh, more information about uh, what, what the work we're doing at Versus at Versus.io. So you can follow me at Twitter at GReal1111. And you can also follow us on Twitter at The Spatial Web. Awesome. And, you know, just as a, um, just as a uh, kind of a interesting aspect there right now, we're, we're recording on September 3rd. The book just came out like uh, you're um, um, us, us talking about, and isn't there like a special right now? Do you have some sort of a, and it's, and that's why I'm specifically saying what day it is because it's only going to last for, uh, for so many days, but right now they can get a, get the book for a special price can't they if they go to uh, our friends at amazon that's correct if you go to amazon you look up the spatial web today uh you're gonna see it for 99 cents uh we might run that out for a couple of days um but i wouldn't count on it past the, the next 24 hours so uh, as a very special offering uh to your guest steven um we're, we're gonna keep that 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 door open for a little bit and um Hopefully, uh, people will take advantage of that because when, when the price shoots back up, you, you're still going to want the book. You're going to have to go pay full price for it. So rather rather get the awareness <laughs> out there on the cheap. So please go to Amazon and, uh, and grab the book for yourselves. Awesome, and and I'll this we're we're interviewing on this is unique for me. We're we're interviewing on the third. It's coming out on the third, and then you got a you got a little bit of time there in which you could go to Amazon. And I I'm not getting paid by anybody here, right? This is a it the book will make you think about the future, and it'll make you want to know more. And uh, um, kudos um, to you all. Uh, it, it's something else, Gabriel. The uh, um, I I want to ask. Make sure I ask uh, a question here as we finish up that uh, has nothing to do with all this. You know. My audience is made up of educators, all levels. 
And I was just wondering, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And if so, who was it? And if you got a chance to say thank you, what'd you say? What would you say? <laughs> I, I, um, I was super lucky to have some really amazing teachers uh, growing up. And they, they, they were, it, for me, they tended to be my English teachers. Um, uh, and, um, uh, but the one that comes to mind that was uh, really instrumental for me uh, was actually uh, a man named West Beach. And when I was in high school, um, I was uh, not adjusting well. And uh, one day I got a little, um, I got a little letter and said, please go to room 201 at 12.30 today. And there was a picture of two, two little cartoon characters and one of them was saying like, are you having a hard time in school? And then the other one like, yeah, school sucks. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> I'm, I know I'm in trouble, but I, I think they're trying to relate to me and it's just horrible. Uh -oh. We go into this room and I meet, we, I meet this guy, Wes Beach. And Wes says, um, more or less, uh, I've been here at the school for the last 25 years. And every year I track down certain students that I think are exceptional, but are having a really difficult time with the way that the school system is, is designed. That you don't learn the way that, that, that the school likes to teach. And what I do is I provide you with an alternative path to get, um, to, to get a diploma and to go on with whatever you want. You can go to college, you can start a business, you can travel the world. And so Wes gave me an opportunity to leave high school early. Um, and that drove me uh, to explore things in the world very differently. And so I think, you know, educators have, have this amazing ability to be able to you know, like a good CEO in a company, ability to sort of recognize talent, right? Really recognize um, when they're, you know, students that, that, are, that are both struggling, but that might have some special sort of capability. So uh, later in life, I, you know, I came to find people like Steve Jobs and, and, and many others that weren't, um, weren't titans of, of academia, um, but we're clearly, you know, smart and inventive people that, that went on to be very successful. So I put myself in that camp, but it was because of, of educators like Wes Beach and others that were able to identify that and provide that alternative path for me. I think the next 20 years, as education goes through its own digital transformation, you know, it's going to take teachers and educators to rethink the rules um, of what education means and what are we educating for. And so... Um, uh, I, I, I tip my hat to you and, and all, all of the listeners today. Um, also, uh, anyone that is teaching um, at, uh, at a school um, that would like to get in for more, more information or would like a uh, copy of the book, please feel free to reach out directly and we'll send you a copy. That's awesome. That is awesome. I'll make sure to remind them of that in the, in the show notes as well. So thank you so much, Gabriel. It, Gabriel, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been fun. The Spatial Web, How Web 3.0 Will Connect Humans, Machines, and AI to Transform the World. It's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating look at what our world could become. I, I, just kudos to you. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V, and Miletto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. 
and that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google Voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. Take care now. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.